Um, I'd like to um, introduce tonight's session, which as the final session um, is extremely important as a, um, the close of uh, what has been <clears throat> a series of very interesting seminars, but also a subject which personally speaking is extremely close to my heart, having worked internationally for several years. Um, the, whilst, of, as Fiona said, technological innovation isn't the only kind of innovation that we're interested in, um, it has an extraordinary importance in developing, developing countries where sometimes the simplest innovations can be extremely effective. We're very, very fortunate to have tonight um, Dr. Adam Stoughton from ISIS Innovation to speak to this question of technological innovations in developing countries. Now, Adam's had a um, really interesting career path thus far, starting off in uh, biology and immunology, gained his PhD at Nottingham University, and then um, transferred his skills into industry and worked as a consultant and research analyst in the pharmaceutical industry for several years before joining ISIS Innovation. He now heads up one of the main teams at ISIS Innovation and has been spearheading and coordinating um, an extremely important innovative um, vaccine development program um, <clears throat> called the Oxford Emergence Tuberculosis Consortium, which many believe will, be, will lead to um, possibly the most significant vaccine development in the area of tuberculosis over the last 50 years. So without much further ado, I'd like to welcome Adam to the stage um, to discuss this issue. Thank you very much. Okay, well, good evening, and firstly, thank you to uh, Matthew for giving ISIS the opportunity to uh, uh, give this presentation tonight. So I thought I'd start off by um, giving you a bit of background as to why it's me standing here um, presenting these slides. Now, I joined ISIS about four and a half years ago, so I've been working in, in tech transfer for, for that period. And during that time, it's been my sort of great pleasure, really, to work with a a fairly bewildering array of different technologies which have arisen from the, um, the research here at Oxford. Now, I guess the majority of these have very clear applications in what we term the commercial markets of um, North America, Western Europe, and Japan, the so-called developed world. But I think we're seeing um, increasingly a significant number of projects which are aimed fairly and squarely at addressing uh, developing world technological needs, and particularly addressing um, infectious diseases in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. So, as Matthew said, my background is um, scientifically in immunology and commercially in the sort of pharmace uh, pharmaceutical and biotech sector. So I guess on joining ISIS, it was inevitable that I would take on projects which span both of these. And really foremost um, within these projects have been um, a range of very exciting vaccine technologies. Now, vaccine research is one of Oxford's great strengths. Um, it spans a number of different departments and is sort of orchestrated under the auspices of the Jenner Institute, directed by Professor Adrian Hill. And there are certainly vaccine projects here at Oxford which address diseases which um, remain important in the uh, developed world, uh, meningitis B, uh, influenza, to cite two particular examples. But again, I think probably the majority of vaccine research here at Oxford is directed at um, generating um, new preventative measures for some of the world's most um, sort of debilitating diseases, and particularly things like TB, malaria, 
and HIV. And it's really through working with these um, particular projects that I hope I've gained um, at least some insight into the kind of technology, or into the kind of challenges that we face in actually taking these technologies from um, an early stage idea through to an actual marketed product that can have a clinical benefit. So, a couple of health warnings, I suppose, first of all. Um, I'm unashamedly going to um, sort of bias this towards vaccines, as that's really what I know a bit about here at Oxford. Um, and then secondly, I'm probably only going to really scrape the surface of some um, fairly key issues and areas which will probably justify an entire series of seminars in their own right. So what I hope to do is to give you at least a general overview and then to talk more specifically about the um, case study that Matthew mentioned, the uh, Oxford Emergent Tuberculosis Consortium, which has been one of our um, recent great successes. So, technology challenges in the developing world. They are many, and this is a, a non-exhaustive list, really. You'll see that a number of them are very much based on infrastructure, things like housing, construction, uh, transport, waste disposal. But there really are huge unmet needs in the um, sort of medical and healthcare areas, and particularly in terms of disease prevention, diagnosis, and treatment, um, all of which are often suboptimal in relation to diseases of the developing world. So how will these technology challenges actually be overcome? Well, maybe first we should ask, where will they be overcome? It's clearly there's some disparity between the developed and developing worlds in terms of the resources and infrastructure available to actually support innovation and particularly pay for development of products. In the developed world, we have, well, ostensibly um, liquid financial markets, um, maybe questionably at the moment, active venture capitalists who will um, you know, deliberately um, invest in high-risk early-stage ventures. We clearly have a preponderance of uh, large, well-resourced, research-intensive universities that provide the, um, you know, the catalyst for the new cutting-edge technologies which could make a difference. And very importantly, we have a clear legal framework that can protect intellectual property in a manner which will incentivize companies to actually invest in, uh, in products that could um, you know, make that difference later on. The developing world, by and large, I am generalizing here, will, will lack these. Um, and obviously, the issue of, uh, sort of low disposable income um, is a significant one. Now, I guess two notable exceptions to this um, are India and China, um, particularly with respect to the um, sort of foundation of well-trained scientists, uh, which uh, is building in both of these countries. But even in these, concerns remain about um, how well IP is protected and also the funding available to progress products. So, and this is a, a somewhat glib statement, it is, at least for the, um, the short term, likely that the developing world will need to, need to look to the developed world for some of the solutions to the major healthcare technology challenges. So I thought this was an interesting statistic. This is actually from a press release from uh, Novartis, which is one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, and it relates to a new initiative um, they've set up the um, Novartis Vaccines Initiative in Global Health, something which is aimed at um, producing new products in, uh, to address developing world diseases. And only 10% of the world's medical research is currently devoted to conditions that account for 90% of the global disease burden. So really we can interpret that as um, a very small amount of the world's medical research is being um, focused on developing world diseases. 
So why is this the case? Well, maybe before I look at some of the particular challenges and maybe even disincentives for companies to get involved in this kind of research, um, I just want to emphasize the magnitude of some of the healthcare problems in the developing world. I've taken, I guess, what are really the big three infectious disease challenges. Um, firstly, malaria. Huge number of cases each year, more than a million deaths, and this is very much an issue um, of importance in sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly among infants. To date, there's no approved vaccine. There are some interesting, promising clinical candidates, um, including one from GSK, which is entering late-stage clinical trials, but as yet, there's nothing which can really effectively prevent malaria um, in the form of a vaccine. And then we have tuberculosis, TB. Nearly 9 million new cases in 2005, 1.6 million deaths in that year alone. Now, we do actually have a vaccine for TB, um, BCG, but this is, well, venerable to say the least. It was first administered to man in 1921, and it's since been shown to be very variable in terms of its efficacy in different areas of the world. It's also pretty ineffectual in terms of inducing protection in adolescence. So there's a real need for a more effective tuberculosis vaccine, and um, fairly urgently. And then thirdly, there's HIV. A massive 33 million people globally are living with HIV infection, at least in 2007. Two million deaths from HIV and AIDS in that same year. There's a whopping 5% prevalence in sub-Saharan Africa. This is a, a colossal problem. And like for malaria, there's no approved vaccine. However, whilst we're likely to see a malaria vaccine probably in the next um, five years, maybe five to ten years, there are a number of senior scientists who are sceptical that we'll see an effective vaccine for HIV, even in our lifetime. So, so huge unmet needs. So, why are companies maybe, and particularly the private sector, why is it disincentivized to develop pro um, products for the developing world when there's clearly um, yeah, a, a market to be, to be had there? Well, probably number one is the, uh, um, the low disposable income, which means that any product sold in the developing world is likely to have a very low profit margin. And anything with a low profit margin is going to put downward pressure on the cost of goods. You know, what does it cost to actually make this? And in many cases, that means, um, in order to lower the cost of goods, actually setting up manufacturing operations in the developing world to take advantage of the cheaper labor costs there. And that might be either through a contractor or through setting up um, in-house. Either way, it's a significant additional cost. The scale of manufacturing is also um, potentially colossal, um, especially for things like vaccines, where um, in excess of 100 million doses may well be required each year. There's also the perceived risk of IP leakage. Companies are really concerned about this. We can't take for granted the way that IP is protected and respected in the uh, developed world. Um, that's not necessarily the case um, in the developing world. And this relates particularly to concerns about manufacturing processes um, and also proprietary materials which are used um, in manufacturing. And in fact, even today, I've been involved in a project where a licensee is seeking to access some proprietary technology from a third party to develop um, a product aimed at the developing world. And 
quite sensibly, their longer-term aspiration is to use this technology in a developing world country, to set up manufacturing there, or to work with a contractor. However, the owner of this proprietary technology is extremely reluctant to give our licensee the right to simply sub-license to a contractor in the developing world. Their fear is that um, if they give those materials to that contractor, they'll soon be used pretty much everywhere, which yeah, is a, obviously a very suspicious attitude, but it's one which results from um, actually their first-hand experience having been burned by this in the past. So there's clearly a, an issue there. In terms of clinical trials, if you're looking to deliver a product aimed very much or very specifically at um, the developing world, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, you're likely to need to actually conduct a large-scale trial in that target population. And this can be really very complex and expensive. And the reason for this simply is that, um, for the most part, the infrastructure, um, although improving, doesn't exist to the same extent that it does in the developed world to actually carry out these trials. And if you need to start from scratch, you have to conduct an epidemiological study, you have to build up the um, infrastructure and support, and this can turn into a hugely expensive and time-consuming process. And also tying into the infrastructure issue is the um, requirement of many pharmaceutical, um, particularly biological products, for cold chain storage, either freezing or um, perhaps more often um, refrigeration. Again, something which we take for granted in, uh, uh, in Western Europe, but in somewhere like the Sudan, it really can't be taken, taken for granted. There's also the issue simply of complexity of delivering and distributing products in the developing world. Now, some large companies will have at least some degree of infrastructure um, in, these, in these territories, but most won't. And in fact, the way that vaccines are delivered to different countries can vary tremendously. So, inevitably, um, a commercial entity looking to develop and deliver a vaccine is going to have to work with um, local government, with NGOs with local presence. Um, and this is yeah, not a, a straightforward thing to get to grips with. And then also, um, many products which, particularly vaccines, which have um, the developing world as their primary market, may have a much smaller market in the commercial, um, in the developed world. Um, for example, in the military or travelers' vaccines. And companies who have committed to supply vaccines to the developing world may be seeking to essentially subsidize the, um, these low-margin products with much higher margin products from these commercial markets. However, if the um, commercial market is too small or even non-existent, clearly additional financial incentives are needed for those companies. So, I mean, the reality is really that um, for products to reach the market in the developing world, public funding initiatives are going to be needed, um, both for companies and also for academic institutions. And one concept that's been around for a long time, um, aimed at developing these kinds of products and delivering them to where they're needed, is the public-private partnership, the PPP. So broadly speaking, this is a partnership between private sector companies and either an NGO, um, a university, a government, some kind of public body. And the quote at the bottom is from um, a sort of senior vaccine industry um, contact. Um, and is admittedly a little flippant. He compares PPPs to unicorns in that um, he thinks everybody's heard of them, but nobody's actually seen one. Now, 
I don't think he's denying that PPPs exist. In fact, there are, there are many of them. I think what he's alluding to here is that it can be very hard to actually pin down exactly what a PPP is. If we go back to the example um, I cited earlier of the um, Novartis initiative, um, this Novartis vaccines initiative for global health is something they've set up, um, which they term a PPP. Um, it's been set up in parallel with Novartis' commercial vaccines business, and in their words, will work with universities, research institutes, and other public or private organizations to establish the scientific basis for vaccines development, which to me is incredibly vague. I mean, yeah, what's that actually going to do? So where does the public funding actually come from to support these, these projects? Well, we're now in a position where there are several very well-resourced um, public and charitable bodies which um, sort of fund research to um, progress these kinds of products from the very early discovery stages through development and to the sort of, um, delivery and distribution stage. And again, this is very much a non-exhaustive list, but simply illustrative of some of the, um, the main funders. Um, probably rightly sitting atop this list is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is a, a relative newcomer, but obviously massively well-resourced in terms of the um, endowment from uh, Bill Gates himself, and more recently from um, the US investor Warren Buffett. And Gates has a very simple um, aim, to eradicate developing world diseases. And at the top of his list is TB, malaria, HIV, and diarrhea. And one of the schemes supported by Gates, um, in collaboration with the Foundation for National Institutes of Health and the Wellcome Trust, is the Grand Challenges in Global Health Scheme, which Oxford has a number of um, projects funded by. And then sort of moving through into the more sort of development phase, um, there are organizations like IRV, focused on HIV, um, the Malaria Vaccines Initiative, and PATH, which has slightly more diverse um, uh, tastes. And then further on again, in terms of actually um, delivering these vaccines to where they're needed, we have UNICEF, World Health Organization, and the Gavi Alliance. And one of the initiatives that uh, the Gavi Alliance is very much involved in is the Advanced Market Commitment Scheme. And this is a very clear carrot to companies to actually invest um, the very large amounts of money required to take new vaccines through to the market. And it's essentially a pot of gold um, contributed to by um, a range of governments and also the Gates Foundation. And the idea is that if a, if a vaccine developer knows that there is a, a guaranteed return if they get the vaccine approved, they will then um, be able to at least cover and hopefully get a return on investment um, in relation to the, the cost of actually developing the product. They'll do this by providing the vaccine at an initial um, much higher margin cost, subsidized by this pot of money. However, they'll then commit to providing the vaccine at a lower so-called tail price for additional 10 years. So the first AMC was confirmed in December last year for a vaccine for um, pneumococcal disease, and the pot uh, contributed so far is $1.5 billion. Now, AMCs as a concept have been knocking around for years and years, but um, obviously it's hugely encouraging to see these actually reaching some level of fruition. And the way that they'll work is that individual governments will be able to decide which vaccine and in what quantity 
they actually wish to purchase. Now, clearly, for a vaccine developer, there's a significant incentive to be first to market here. If you're the only vaccine approved for a particular indication, chances are you're going to take um, most or all of that, um, that AMC prize. So once that pot's been used up, the governments, or local governments, will then split the cost of buying the vaccine at the lower price with UNICEF and Gavi, which have traditionally provided support for purchasing vaccines in the developing world. So there are quite a few different funding initiatives which can support this kind of um, uh, research. And as you'd expect, quite a bit of this filters down into universities and certainly does at Oxford. I think one important message here is that although clearly this is a good thing for university to be accessing this money and progressing this kind of research, the funding often comes with very stringent terms in terms of how any arising IP is commercially exploited. You know, there are most definitely strings attached. This is just to illustrate the sort of magnitude of the research funding that Oxford alone pulls in. And within that UK charity blue segment, quite a large portion of that will come from the Wellcome Trust, which is um, probably behind Gates, the largest um, funder of, sort of developing world medical research. And then of the uh, sort of opposite wedge on overseas public and charity, I think an increasing um, proportion of that will come from, from Gates. So this is something that we're, we're seeing more and more of. So in terms of the consequences for um, universities and, and for ISIS in terms of actually exploiting um, the results of this research, um, one thing that we need to bear in mind are the obligations on, uni on the university, which ISIS may then have to pass through to, to licensees. So again, this is um, just a, um, an illustration of some of the kinds of things that we encounter. Now, it's quite normal for um, the funder to um, require the recipient of the grant to adhere to the funder's sort of global access strategy. So this usually goes along the lines of providing the vaccine at a reasonable cost to the developing world, which is entirely fair. However, some of them will go further and actually dictate the price at which any resulting product can be sold. Now, this may be um, in line with the tiered pricing schedules um, of the European Union, which essentially um, dictate that the developing world product will be sold at a certain percentage of the weighted average cost of the, uh, the price in the developed world. Even more extreme is actually dictating the maximum price at which a product can be sold, and we have encountered this. Now, again, I'm going to appreciate the sort of um, intentions of keeping the price as low as possible. However, what this rather fails to take into account, um, aside from sort of currency fluctuations and exchange rates, is that often at the point at which we take on these obligations, we just don't know what the cost of goods is going to be. So to impose a maximum cost per dose can really be quite unrealistic. As you'd expect, most funders expect a resulting product to be made widely available in the developing world, so not just to you know, two or three countries in Africa. And again, this, you know, on the face of it, is entirely sensible, but it's by no means trivial in terms of actually making sure that the vaccine is delivered to um, a range of different countries, often through quite sort of different systems. Another issue that we encounter um, probably increasingly frequently is that funders require step-in rights 
if they believe that the technology isn't being exploited in an appropriate manner, either by Oxford or ISIS, or indeed by um, a licensee. And as part of this, they may demand access to background IP, which, um, of course, can be subject to very different sort of ownership provisions. It's also fairly common for um, the funder to oblige the recipient to seek um, consent, or at least consult with them, before we enter into a license. So there's a great desire for the funder to retain some level of control over the whole exploitation process. In some cases, not unreasonably. However, slightly more problematic can be an insistence that um, we grant only non-exclusive licenses. Now, again, the motivation for this is maybe um, understandable in that you know, the funder will seek to make it widely available. However, we know from experience that licensing exclusively can actually provide a significant incentive for a company to invest the large amounts of money needed to take something to the market. Even more difficult can be an obligation on the university to actually seek freedom to operate licenses to background IP. Now, again, clearly these are things which will need to be sorted out at some point in the future um, for the commercial exploitation. But to insist that a university does this is, again, maybe not entirely realistic. Um, we would typically expect our licensees to sort of take on that obligation on the understanding that the license would... Um, sort of reflect any additional royalty burdens incumbent on the licensee. And then lastly, it's um, becoming fairly standard practice for funders to expect to share in any profits resulting from the sale of resulting products. So I think the message here is that many funders of developing world-focused um, research have really quite stringent conditions, which alone um, or in isolation can, can be managed. Um, where we encounter problems is when they expect them to apply in full, even if they're only a minority funder of a whole pro um, program. So you may have three or four different funders all seeking to impose terms, which you know, may indeed kind of conflict with each other. So quite sensibly, the university has adopted um, a policy in relation to exploitation of developing world products. And also very sensibly, it's kept this fairly high level, which gives ISIS and Oxford the freedom to actually um, construct licenses which will sort of work in the real world. And this addresses two main points. Firstly, that we will um, patent really only as required to um, facilitate and encourage exploitation. And then secondly, we will, um, you know, I guess mirroring the kind of global access strategies of the funders, grant licenses with provisions that seek to increase the availability of arising products um, at affordable prices to less developed countries. So obviously we expect our commercial licensees to um, appreciate and cooperate with this policy. So what does this mean for the licenses that, that we grant? Well, I've just given um, listed three examples of the kinds of issues that we need to build into licenses to meet the kind of obligations that uh, are incumbent on ourselves from the funders. Firstly, diligence obligations. Well, any license that ISIS grants, whether it's for um, a developing or developed world product, must include provisions which ensure that the licensee commits appropriate resources to actually developing that. We don't license out technology for it to be put on a shelf or to simply um, be used by a licensee to block a competitor's um, technology. But this becomes 
increasingly important in relation to developing world products, simply because um, of the sort of reach through um, or reach back into the, the funding obligations. Likewise, I mentioned step-in rights. These need to be very, very carefully managed. And certainly we need to deal in great detail with a scenario where the licensee is perhaps not developing the technology appropriately. So you know, if we have three different uh, funding bodies, all of which is expecting a step-in right, you know, how on earth is that managed if you've got some um, uh, in that scenario? Um, it's, it's not an easy thing to resolve. And then lastly, tying into that, there's termination. So if the license is terminated, it's hugely important for ISIS to retain the necessary rights that will enable us to continue the development of that technology, ideally through licensing out to um, a new licensee. It's by no means straightforward to disentangle the IP at this point, particularly if the technology originally licensed by ISIS has been, com been combined with the original licensee's proprietary technology. And this is something that uh, keeps the lawyers very busy. So, those are sort of the generalities. I'd now like to talk through a particular sort of case study which we see as a, um, a good example of how we can really um, successfully exploit um, very much uh, sort of developing world products. So this is the snappily titled Oxford Emergent Tuberculosis Consortium Limited, rather sensibly abbreviated to OETC. And this was a joint venture set up last year between um, ISIS, the university, and a U.S. vaccine development company, Emergent Biosolutions. And it was created to really facilitate the ongoing development of MVA85A, which is currently the world's um, most clinically advanced um, next-generation TB vaccine. And the picture there is of a, an infant in South Africa actually receiving the vaccine. So what is MVA85A, other than a, another confusing medical acronym? Well, MVA is modified vaccinia Ankara, which is essentially a virus which was um, isolated from a horse in Turkey many, many years ago. The virus was then replicated many times to the point where it became incapable of replicating in humans and has since been used as essentially a delivery system for antigens, um, antigens being particular proteins from a pathogen of interest, with the idea being that this will induce a specific immune response to that pathogen which will provide protection. So why is it important? Well, to sort of reiterate some of the earlier messages, the current TB vaccine, BCG, is really quite suboptimal in terms of its ability to provide protection in um, many ge geographical areas. And it's pretty inefficient in, um, or completely ineffectual, in fact, in adolescence. Clearly, TB causes huge um, uh, sort of disease problems and economic burdens in the developing world. And in fact, it's the single greatest cause of mortality in HIV-infected individuals as well. So there's a real unmet need for an, a new, a better TB vaccine, um, particularly in light of the emergence of the um, various TB um, drug-resistant strains which we've um, seen in the last two or three years. So what MVA85A does is to enhance the immune response to BCG. And it's able to generate a particular type of immune response called a T-cell response. And that's illustrated in this, this slide. This is the only um, sort of data I'll, I'll show. But um, what you can see is that on the lower line here, 
is the T cell response to, um, uh, in, in man to BCG administration. This is the current vaccine. The pink line is from a single administration of MVA85A. And then this huge peak here represents the effects of MVA85A in, indiv in individuals who have already received the BCG vaccination. So the vaccine was actually created in Oxford back in the 1990s by um, a team uh, comprising uh, Helen McShane, um, Sarah Gilberts, and Adrian Hill. And this is actually the focus of Helen's doctoral research. And really this has formed the bedrock of Helen's academic career. And she's successfully tested the vaccine successively in rodent models, in non-human primates, and more recently in human subjects, both here in the UK and also in uh, Africa, in both South Africa and the Gambia. And the vaccine has been shown to be really very safe and well-tolerated, and also to be very, very highly immunogenic, as you saw in that last slide. And it's now reached the stage where it's actually the world's most clinically advanced TB vaccine candidate, and is ready for entry into what will be a fairly pivotal phase 2B study, um, hopefully in the next three or four months. And what this phase 2B study will show hopefully, for the first time, is that the very potent immune responses generated by this vaccine will translate into protection against the disease in man. So it's a hugely important trial. And the challenge that we were faced with here at Oxford and within ISIS was really how to find a route to progress this vaccine. You know, it had reached sort of phase one, phase two trials. Um, it was clearly, it clearly had huge potential but it had really reached a stage where it had outgrown the university in terms of the, um, the resources that we could commit to it. So the challenges that really we were facing um, individually were quite numerous. First of all, we had to access a trial site to actually test the vaccine. Now, there's actually only one trial site in the world where you can test a TB vaccine in a large-scale efficacy trial, and that is in um, the Worcester Township in South Africa. Um, this has been set up between ERAS, um, which is the TB vaccine division of uh, the Gates Foundation, and the University of Cape Town. Second challenge was to find funding. Well, thankfully, the Wellcome Trust, which is a long-standing contributor and supporter of the program, um, stumped up four million towards the cost of the trial. And equally fortunately, ERAS agreed to match this. However, this is really just the start, as there were very significant additional costs associated with progressing in parallel the process development and manufacturing um, activities needed to develop a process that can actually produce 100 million doses a year. So we were finding that we really needed to access a range of different expertises here in clinical research, regulatory affairs, manufacturing, and just generally commercial vaccine development. And it became very clear that a commercial partner was going to be needed. So we approached quite a large number of commercial vaccine developers. And whilst almost all of them acknowledged the huge potential of the vaccine, I think most of them really had concerns over the complexity of the market and certainly the logistics of supplying the, um, the developing world. And it became very clear to us that a commercial partner would need a sort of certain set of attributes. Firstly, to actually understand and get to grips with the, uh, the markets, both in the um, sort of developed and developing worlds. Secondly, to be sensitive to the requirements of the, the, the uh, university. Um, the vaccine continues to be Helen McShane's um, sort of research focus, and so it's very important for us to try and give her as much freedom as possible to continue to use the vaccine 
um, in her research here at Oxford. Any commercial partner was obviously going to have to be very adept at accessing sources of public funding and maintaining relationships with these funders. And it also became clear that they would need to have, um, ideally, a familiarity with the MVA vaccine platform. So we commenced discussions with Emergent Biosolutions back in 2007. At this point, Emergent was expanding both its sort of non-biodefense interests and also its international infrastructure to support um, its other programs. It had also acquired a company in Germany called Vivax, which had a proprietary MVA platform. However, as discussions progressed, and this is to sort of shortcut over many months, um, it became clear that a sort of simple, inverted commas, licensing deal really wasn't the viable way forward. As in that scenario, the vaccine was unlikely to be a top priority within Emergence portfolio. This was something which both we and the funders really wanted to make sure was the case. But Emergent became, or Emergent um, sort of continued to be very enthusiastic about this, and you know, we looked for a way to um, you know, sort of find a solution to take this forward. And in the end, a joint venture, um, a new company was proposed as um, a viable solution. So this provided actually a dedicated vehicle solely focused on further development of the vaccine. And so we ended up with OETC. So this just gives an idea of the kinds of um, uh, sort of structure that we, we adopted. So OETC itself is um, owned jointly between Emergent as the majority shareholder and Oxford um, with 49%. And there are three sort of key relationships here. Firstly, with Oxford and ISIS. Um, and what OETC is, in a sense, is a, a pot into which the various parties have contributed certain things and will get certain things back out. So from Oxford, we have the IP, we have the clinical development expertise, and we get back out milestones and royalties. There is then an agreement with ARAS to supply the developing world markets. And ARAS provides access to the clinical trial sites. Um, it provides funding in the form of the 4 million. And in return, it gets those supply rights. And then we have Emergent, the parent company, as the um, commercial licensee. So again, Emergent receives the right to supply the commercial markets and feeds back into OETC um, financial payments. So just to look in more detail at the kind of contributions, um, I mean, Emergent is putting in um, quite a lot, really, into this. Obviously, there's a, a cash commitment. Um, there are probably 20, 25 people working um, within Emergent on this project. Um, they have put in um, a general manager and a project manager into the company, and they provide us with a commercialization partner. And so they provide really the sort of the day-to-day -day management and running of the company. And also critically, they provide the expertise in the um, manufacturing and scale-up processes, which was um, something very much missing from the, the mix beforehand. And then we have Oxford putting in the IP. Um, we've contributed the sort of clinical data generated over the years. Likewise, the actual vaccine material itself, the seed stocks from which you make it, and also the significant expertise of the academics. And then we retain um, responsibilities in relation to the um, sort of running and management of the uh, forthcoming Phase 2B trial, and generally in terms of the product development. So overlaid on all of this, or sitting in parallel to the, the structure, there's a whole range of other relationships which we needed to manage to really bring this to a successful conclusion. 
the academics, um, thankfully, were fantastically, fantastically supportive in this. And without their sort of passion and time commitments, this probably wouldn't have worked at all. Um, but obviously, managing their concerns um, was very important in making this work. Likewise, the university. And the university encompasses um, colleagues in research services, um, in the legal services office, um, and also in finance. And again, sort of balancing their different concerns and objectives was um, very important um, on an ongoing basis. ISIS also had a pivotal role in managing the relationships with the funders, um, principally the Wellcome Trust, which was obviously a very active participant in the um, funding for the Phase 2B study, but also the MRC, at whose site in the Gambia we'd conducted uh, two clinical trials. And then last but not least, there was the contract manufacturer, which was actually supplying the vaccine product for the clinical trials. Um, this is IDT, a company in Germany. And there was a range of contracts we negotiated with, um, with them to sort of support all of this. So it was ultimately a fairly complex set of um, relationships to be managed. I think we've learned really quite a lot from this whole process um, you know, in relation to actually developing and commercializing products which have this um, developing world focus. It certainly requires the coordination of many different parties, and certainly in this case, parties located um, all around the world, um, in North America, in Africa, in the UK. And this can simply be quite logistically, cha logistically challenging. As I mentioned, there's this very complex sort of relationships between parties which although maybe a line in terms of the end goal, will have very different motives for getting there, whether that's commercial or humanitarian. And we expend an awful lot of effort in terms of helping these different parties understand the other's points of view and hopefully reach compromised positions. It's certainly a requirement to have um, a good understanding of the market and also to find partners who share this understanding. And also in terms of the university, I think it's been an education for us in that there's obviously a line to be drawn between developing a product to the point at which it's validated sufficiently to attract commercial interest. However, if you cross that line, you may stray into territory where the product really completely outgrows the resources and the ability of the university to develop it in um, a coherent fashion. And at that point, you, know, you really need to be finding a commercial partner. So I think our, um, we've had some education in terms of timing of these projects. And then lastly, just to look at what we hope OETC will, um, will achieve in the future. Well, specifically in relation to the TB vaccine, obviously we desperately hope that the Phase 2B trial will be successful. Um, this will be a massive landmark in potentially um, controlling global TB we also want it to actually be able to develop a manufacturing process which, if the vaccine works, will enable us to supply the developing world in the quantities needed. And this is by no means an in insignificant task. We'll certainly look for OTC to bring in additional public funding to support this. And various irons are in the fire um, on that front. And ultimately, if the Phase 2B study is successful, we'll seek to take the vaccine into a Phase 3 study for licensure um, in the not-too-distant future and also to um, look at additional Phase 2B studies um, in both adolescents and also HIV-infected subjects. So there's a great deal of work that could be done, yes, on this program. But I think overarching all of this is that, you know, I think 
we really hope that this is a good demonstration of how universities and commercial partners can really work very creatively to um, sort of progress ostensibly developing world products in a manner really which balances the quite different commercial and um, economic or ethical concerns that, uh, that the different parties have. Thank you. Adam, thank you very much indeed for a really illuminating insight into the complexities um, involved when developing vaccines or other technologies indeed uh, for developing country use. I felt that your talk really um, gave a palpable sense um, of the sort of timeline that you talk about when you're developing vaccines. Um, I mean, 15 years just to get to this point from early doctoral research. Um, gave a palpable sense of organizational interests involved and of the complexity around some of the ownership uh, rights and the incentives, how to get them right so that partner organizations can remain interested and motivated throughout the development process. And I think ISIS's role in that was particularly clear. I had a couple of points that I'd like to just uh, mention. The, fir the first is... Um, as you alluded to, the, the interests, needs, and capabilities of each of the partner organizations involved in this process is really crucial, crucial to ensuring what has been a successful partnership thus far. Um, private sector, public sector, and nonprofit organizations have very different capabilities, however, and the goals and interests, whilst they can't always be aligned, can be uh, effectively managed. And for the for-profit organization that you were involved with, the, their motives are really fairly clear in the sense of profit maximization to a certain extent. Um, the non-profit organizations, however, tend to operate in a variety of different landscapes, um, competing with other non-profit organizations, often mimicking their projects, um, have to respond to pressures of donor interests, and of course, uh, institutional discourses with respect to what is an appropriate sort of development practice. So I'd be interested to get an idea of how in practice you were able to, at ISIS, um, manage those different interests um, in, in, a, in, a, in a practical sense over time. <clears throat> I also wanted to raise one other um, issue before opening it up to the audience. Um, technologies frequently in developing countries need to be contextualized for them to be successful. Um, and often technologies developed in developed countries um, don't fit as they perhaps were intended to in the developing, context, developing world context. And that's because of clearly very different socio-cultural contexts that vary from place to place. And I, just, I actually just wanted to take the opportunity to draw on um, some personal experience I had in Ethiopia whilst working in a vaccine program, specifically it was polio and measles, to illustrate this point. Um, in this program, you can see vaccine disposal was the issue here and that it was not done in a particularly safe or effective manner. And these were exposed needles and frequent instances of needle stick injuries that were occurring in local health uh, facilities. One um, very innovative technology, in a sense, that was developed by UNICEF was a flat-packed, brightly colored, easily assembled, very lightweight um, disposable um, needle disposal box that was um, distributed free of charge to all of the health posts in the country. 
<clears throat> so in many ways, it was absolutely designed and, and fit for purpose. However, because of different sociocultural contexts, different needs, different limitations in each of these facilities, um, even perfectly designed, in many ways, innovations, technologies can be adapted um, and, and distorted as was the case in this one, where I wouldn't mind, but the fridge was broken, so it didn't make much sense supporting it in that way. But this, of course, isn't something that's exclusive to developing countries, um, but faced with such complex public health and development contexts and minimal resources and often poorly trained staff, excessive workloads and so on, innovations often get distorted and rendered uh, useless. So my point is really that there's a need to contextualize innovations to the needs of the local populations destined for its use. And I wondered, as in this case with the TB vaccine, if upstream, which is where we are now in the development of this vaccine, whether these sorts of concerns are actually being factored in, um, even at this early stage. Adam also mentioned that developing countries are a long way for a variety of different reasons from having the sort of infrastructure, both legal, financial, and intellectual to innovate for themselves. The United Nations Development Report 2001 showed a technology achievement index, which illustrates this quite clearly, that with only one significant innovation hub in Cape Town, um, almost the entire continent of Africa, for example, is considered marginalized for innovation. So really combining these two issues, I wanted to um, posit that getting innovations like this TB vaccine on, delivered on the ground in developing countries probably shouldn't be separated from a simultaneous discussion. The first is how to get target countries more involved from the outset in the design and delivery of this vaccine, but also how can the process be designed so that it simultaneously helps develop a research and development capacity of their own locally. Technological innovation is a very different, for developing countries, is a very different animal to technological innovation by developing countries. So really my question is, very long-windedly put, in the case of the OETC, are there any local institutions with whom you would have partnered that perhaps could have fulfilled these dual requirements? Well, one of the key aspects of this program from the, uh, the early stages, and, and particularly um, from the early clinical trials, was the interaction with the, the Worcester Township site, which, as I said, was established jointly between um, AERAS, which is a North American division of the, uh, the Gates Foundation, and the University of Cape Town. And what that provided was exactly the kind of local knowledge and understanding of how TB vaccines you know, will actually be sort of delivered, um, which was really very critical um, to factor in as early as we could in the program. So... I mean, I'd wholeheartedly agree that um, identifying the relevant um, sort of local expertise is a key component to making these schemes work, whether that's a local university, as it was in this case with Cape Town, um, whether it's um, an NGO with local presence, or even um, a local government. I think it, any and all of these um, can work and can really add a huge amount to uh, developing world programs. Okay. Thank you very much. I'd like to open it up now to the audience. Would anybody have any questions for Adam? Yes, sir. I 
I mean, I think, I mean, certainly some funders are fairly even-handed whether the product is destined for the developing or developed world in terms of the, the conditions that they, they impose. Um, certainly we find that with some of the funders who are pretty much dedicated to developing world issues, um, whether it's because they maybe lack some of the experience in developing products for addressing commercial markets, um, they certainly seem to lack sensitivity occasionally in terms of the practicalities particularly of attracting commercial interest to invest in these products and take them forward. So it's not to say it's unmanageable, but it, it certainly takes longer to, to sort out and typically will you know, simply involve dialogue with these parties and you know, talking them through the actual practical implications of some of the, um, the obligations that they're seeking to impose. I think that's a really difficult, polemic, knotty issue for us to end on, the issue of brain drain the inequities of research capacity at a global level. And I think what we can certainly take away from this uh, presentation is that that inequity needs to be redressed, both through the innovation process here in developed countries, but also at a global governance level. Um, I'd like to echo Fiona Reid's words. Thank you all ever so much for your participation over the last seven weeks. Um, I personally found it an extremely rewarding um, set of seminars. I've learned an enormous amount, um, and I hope you have too, and I hope above all you've found it enjoyable um, and that um, with a bit of luck we'll be able to repeat this series um, same time next year, perhaps with a new set of speakers tackling new issues around medical innovation um, and constantly exploring the current and knotty and challenging topics um, that cuts through this very difficult subject. Um, I'd also like to thank Dr. Adam Stoughton once again for a very interesting presentation. <clears throat>